0: Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 131. It's been quite a while since I did a solo episode, so I'm gonna tackle this one by myself. Uh, It's a topic that's actually gotten a lot of attention over the past few years, not just in baseball, but across a number of different sports. We're gonna talk about workload management. And I think where we're gonna attack it just a little bit differently with this particular podcast is we're gonna speak to how it's not really just a one-size-fits-all approach, about how what you do for young kids um, in the baseball realm versus major leaguers, people with a lot of experience, might actually be markedly different. So we're going to talk basically about the interaction between load and capacity and how we impact both of those different factors in this equation. So hopefully this is something that you'll be able to take and and implement with your training and how you manage your players and your 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 kids if you're in the parenting world. Um, But I think just as importantly, I think there'll be some lessons across other sports as well um, as we work our way through this. So look forward to it. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the most comprehensive NSF certified for sport daily nutritional supplement I've ever tried. With so many stressors in life, it's difficult to maintain effective nutritional habits and give our bodies the nutrients they need to thrive. As a father of three young kids and a co-founder of multiple businesses in multiple states, on top of still being an avid exerciser, I know that busy schedules can really take their toll on us. Whether it's poor sleep, exercise or life stressors, environmental factors, or simply not eating enough of the right foods, we can wind up deficient nutritionally. This is where Athletic Greens can really help. It's a game-changing nutritional insurance policy. They simplify the logistics of getting optimal nutrition on a daily basis by giving you just one thing with all the best things. And that's why I use it daily and recommend it to our athletes. One scoop of Athletic Greens contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more. They work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet, increase energy and focus, aid in digestion, recovery, and supporting of a healthy immune system. This all can happen without taking multiple products. While most nutritional products come to market and stay stagnant, Athletic Greens continues to obsessively improve this one holistic formula based on the latest research, producing 53 improvements over the last decade. They invest in the most absorbable and natural source of each ingredient and go above and beyond in third-party testing to ensure their customers continue to receive the highest quality and best daily nutritional habit on the planet. It's lifestyle-friendly whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, and contains less than one gram of sugar without compromising on taste. They put 75 ingredients to the NSF per sport certification to come up with a formula that's trusted by some of the world's best athletes, including our own. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving our listeners 10 free travel packets with their subscription. Simply go to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy to receive my offer. These travel packs are perfect for supporting your immune system, energy, and gut health when you're traveling for games, training, or simply when you're on the go. They can be a great counterbalance to the less than ideal on the road food options. So if you want to bridge the gap between deficient and optimal and give yourself the best chance to get nutrient diversity, then head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy and get your 10 free travel packets today. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y. As I mentioned in the intro, we are going to tackle a topic that has actually gotten a lot of attention over the last couple of years. Um, this principle of workload management. And I think it's it's especially timely, obviously in the world right now, uh, there are a lot of discussions about this, I think largely because of the load management um, kind of conversations that have taken place, particularly in the NBA over the last couple of years, but you have had it trickle into some different sports as well. But I think also just in general, sports science, performance science, these are really, really uh, emerging industries. You see every professional team and a lot of colleges, really investing a lot of resources here, hiring some super bright people um, from all walks of life to really contribute um, to kind of building this this body of knowledge so that we can better support our athletes, um, prepare them better for competition, but also help them really rebound. And one of the most important things I think we can do to make this a little bit more baseball specific is just to reflect on maybe some of the interactions that I've had uh, with colleagues from different realms. One of, one of the things that's cool about uh Sports Performances. We've had a a collection of interns that have gone on to be, you know, head strength conditioning coaches, directors of performance in, you know, the NHL and NBA, we have folks that are working in football. So you get to stay in touch with them and, and have conversations. And what's always interesting is how stunned uh my peers are in other industries, other sports at how many games are played in a short amount of time in in baseball, and you know, and certainly Major League Baseball calendar, it's a hundred sixty two game schedule with you know spring training on the front end and postseason on the tail end. If you're on a really strong team. You know, we're talking about over 200 games in roughly 230 days. Maybe they get, you know, two days off in a month. And in many cases, they lose those when there's a rain out. Um, you have to play a double header. Um, actually know of a scenario where we played three games in 32 hours with a fright across the time zone mixed in in the middle. So you just don't ever see that in any other sports. But what's really interesting is if you look at the college you know high school and you know even younger realms you know you'll see kids play seven games in two days in, in like you know amateur basketball but in baseball you could play doubleheaders both saturday and sunday and you know a situation like that if you're a 14-year-old kid you know if you're dehydrated you're you're really playing from behind the eight ball for a huge chunk of the weekend so i do think we just need to appreciate that that baseball is very different than basketball football hockey some of these other sports um just because of the number of games that are played and i think that you know, a lot of times we maybe overlook that just because baseball is a game that has a lot of standing around, right? There's a little bit of action and then, you know, there's, there's five minutes before something cool happens. And, you know, you might be a right fielder that jogs out to right field and then jogs back to the dugout, you know, for all nine innings of the game. You might not see an absolute, you know, a single play, um, to keep you entertained. So I think we need to be mindful that that's still stress being on your feet all day, um, being in cleats for such a long season. It's just, it's different than what we get in other sports and, what we realized very quickly is, you know, if you look at the NBA, the NHL, you know, and certainly the NFL where they play once a week, the games are less frequent. Um, so you can buy off days a lot easier than you can in the baseball world. So in the baseball world, you just you can't afford to get behind the eight ball. So I've I've used the hackneyed expression that I stole from my business partner, Shane Rye. It's listen when it whispers instead of waiting for it to yell um and i think you have to do that in baseball more than anywhere else um just because if you do get caught behind um you know it becomes very very challenged to make it up because the the gameplay is so frequent but at the end of the day you know i think if we need to really wrap our heads around you know this whole concept of workload management we have to realize that that this entire discussion is centered around um, the interaction between load and capacity. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's overly simple, but I think we have to do that. And then we, we can, you know, look a little bit more detailed underneath both of those categories. Um, you know, and we have both acute and chronic injuries. And we have acute and chronic interventions um, that may impact how load and capacity impact those those injuries. So in an acute injury, right, you know, whether you're talking about ACL rupture on a change of direction, you know, or a, a collision with a you know an outfield wall or you know, a, uh, you know, a hamstring strain that happens when someone, you know, steps on a bag reaching to kind of beat out an infill grounder. Um, we realize that there's a high load that exceeds a tissue's capacity for loading. Um, so you get a rupture, you get a fracture, you get something like that. And in an acute injury, you know, there are times when it's, you know, Something that's completely outside of our control. Think about a car accident, right? If your, if your shin hits the dashboard and you rupture your PCL, like there's nobody on the planet who has the strength to basically overcome, you know, the forces involved in a situation like that. Um And certainly that may be the exact same case if they're, you know, an individual gets tackled on the football field and, you know, they get that, that posterior tibial translation and they rupture their PCL. Like that's, that's life. That's the happenstance that happens in sports. Some are getting hit by pitches, you know, things like that happen. But we also have to realize that a lot of those acute injuries uh, may have been building, right? So the example of the, you know, person straining a hamstrings as they reach for the bag, you know, there could have been a, you know, a tendonopathy that was in place that built and built and built. And that, that particular load exceeded a tissue's capacity for loading. And it just, it happened traumatically. But the other introspection we also have chronic injuries, right? So a chronic load you know, eventually builds to the point that the tissue can't handle it any longer. So this may be, you know, the pitcher who's thrown a ton of innings and not had issues. And then, you know, one day they just wake up and their shoulder's barking at them and they, they go to play catch, you know, and, and this often in, interesting, you, you always, you know, will see injuries across baseball where people come in hurting after an off day. Um, so it's kind of like an interesting thing where like, all right, what happened? Did you do anything? Or is it just one of those things where load was building and building and building and it eventually got to that threshold where it exceeded your your capacity for it, um, and what we have to realize is that every one of our interventions um, in a strength and conditioning, sports medicine realm, or you know even uh, you know if we're talking about really clinical, what what a, a doctor might do, they all word, work by stabilizing load or reestablishing capacity, and so that's going to be a, a big framework for this discussion that we're working through today. Um, so we have both acute interventions and we have chronic interventions that work to do that. So if we look at an acute intervention, we adjust a pitch count, right? We, we we modify how much load can be thrown into the system, right? That's something that's been implemented with, with success in the, in the younger age groups, although it's it's a little bit debatable, I think probably more than it should be. Um, we also have situations where maybe we provide hydration or nutrition, right? We give someone who's dehydrated water that helps to reestablish their capacity to handle whatever load is thrown at them. Um, we can implement, you know, manual therapy or things like Mark Pro or red light therapy or BFR, some of these recovery modalities that may help them to reestablish capacity quicker. You're not fundamentally changing the load on their tissue. What you're doing is you're basically giving them a better environment in which they can bounce back from that loading. And so those are very acute things, right? Modifying pitch count, giving them a drink of water, you know, throwing in some of these things. But there's also chronic interventions. And and that works, in my experience, way more on this Concept of of stabilizing load, right? Because we get progressive overload in our strength and conditioning programs, our throwing programs, so that we can build work capacity in both a general and specific sense. So the idea is simply we're making a more robust athlete, and this kind of underscores the the conversations, the debates that are happening in the industry where, you know, you always see people that tend to gravitate towards one side of the sports science equation, right? Do we build a really robust athlete that can handle anything, or do we meticulously manage workloads so that people don't get into a bad situation? My experience has been that the answer is right in the middle, right? You have athletes that need to build more work capacity. And then you have some athletes that have built a ton of capacity are chronically overworked and we need to give them more, um, you know, tools to be successful from actually bouncing back to the workload they prepared themselves for. So these are very different discussions, um, across different populations. So it's important that we, you know, outline a framework, uh, through which we can actually work to attack them. One of these frameworks that I like to use is the law of repetitive motion. Um, and I'd actually encourage you to take out a piece of paper while you're listening to this and, and write out this equation. I equals NF over AR. So NF are your numerators, AR are your denominators, and, and I, which is the injury or the insult to the tissue, um, is the outcome. And, and what we realize is, you know, we can certainly work directly on the injury itself, whether we, you know, do some dry needling, some manual therapy. You know, sometimes that insult may be like a bursitis that responds well to a cortisone injection or something like that. Um, and certainly, kind of foam rolling on a daily basis probably attacks this, you know, in an indirect way. But really, the most important things for reducing the injury, the adult to the tissue, is to to work on those four factors. So, you know, certainly the end, the number of repetitions, we can reduce that, right? So we can throw fewer pitches. That's that's one option. We can also try to reduce the F, which is the force of each repetition. And we have to take into account that this is actually expressed as a percentage of maximal strength. So if we make an athlete stronger, this number is inherently smaller. And and this is why some people go to physical therapy and just work on strengthening, even independent of the rest, and they they actually get better. And it's a a little bit more of a loaded discussion um, for another day, but I think in the context of this discussion, if we make an athlete stronger, and we minimize the number of repetitions. We work really, really well on the the top side of that you know kind of equation um, but on the bottom we have ar which is amplitude and rest so amplitude we can add range of motion to the system this may be a, a important thing for an athlete um, who doesn't have a great deceleration pattern right we give them a longer runway we teach them to work into their front hip we give them some thoracic rotation some scapular upward rotation all these things that allow them to have a little bit more of a runway over which they can produce force and also dissipate force um, and then certainly we can add rest to the system. We can give somebody an extra day between starts. Um, you know, we can also, you know, create a situation where they're hanging at the end of a season and we just give them some time without a baseball in their hands. These are all really, you know, easy ways to implement it. So I equals NF over AR. I've written about this a bunch on my website. If you, if you search for the law of repetitive motion at ericcressy.com, it'll give you some insights on how you can attack this, but it absolutely applies to every single injury scenario that we encounter. Um, and it's a great framework you can utilize in, in the context of this load and capacity discussion because we're ultimately using our acute and chronic interventions on both the load and the capacity front to impact this equation. But I think it's really important as we build on this that we talk about whether we're, you know, discussing youth athletes or adult athletes because they're very different. In kids, we typically see a very low capacity because they haven't participated in consistent strength conditioning for long enough. Um, we also know they're not skeletally mature, so we tend to see more, or I should say, less capacity of the skeletal system, the bones, and that's why they're so susceptible to growth plate injuries. Um, and because throwing a baseball is the single fastest motion in all sports, it's a respiratory for injuries. It's high load in low capacity athletes. Um, and I think underneath this umbrella, the extra concerning ones Are the tall kids, right? We know there's every little league on the country has that six foot one 12-year-old that throws harder than everyone else and throws downhill and scares the heck out of all of the the 10-year-olds. So extra concerning are the athletes with the best anthropometric characteristics for throwing hard. Long arms, long legs. Um, My buddy Derek Johnson, who's the pitching coach for the Reds, he I remember him at a seminar one time joking that, you know, these are arms that are writing checks that their butts can't cash. Um and unfortunately we know that the teenage brain isn't Exactly well equipped for making decisions with long-term health in mind. So these kids who have you know quick arms at young ages, even if they don't have the strength to, to support those, those biomechanics, in many cases they're the ones that go out and get you know absolutely abused by you know coaches and you know playing for multiple teams and things like that. So we need to make sure we protect guys from themselves when they have anthropometric characteristics that allow them to throw hard before they've really built a lot of capacity. And I think we have to you know, appreciate in this group that there's a few different ways that we can actually help them a lot. So I think the first strategy is that pitch counts matter, right? We have to protect them from themselves um, and not put them on multiple teams, you know, pitching back-to-back days over weekends and things along those lines. These, these are actual issues. And we have tons of, of research that support this. Um, PitchSmart.org is a great website that outlines some, some protocols. If you need, you know, proof, go back and look at the 2006 study from Olson that looked at, you know, a number of innings pitched per year, that looked at showcase attendances, things like that, that, that all tend to predict injuries. Um, we also need to build up gross Movement capacity so you know really general capacity with good strength and conditioning I think it's important to get kids involved in some kind of strength conditioning really Honestly, by 13 at the latest. Um, and if they're excited about it, they want to start doing some body weight stuff and things like that. Um, you know, it can start even earlier. I wouldn't force it if they're not interested. And concurrently, they're playing multiple sports, building up this really good, um, you know, kind of movement foundation, um, upon which we can layer more of the specific stuff that comes later. So when I say specific, you know, in the context of of baseball, that means we need to do a a progressive throwing program. You know that that has hills and valleys built in over the course of year to gradually, you know, build up different things. Um, I think the problem is right now we're in an industry where kids can absolutely pitch as hard as they want off a mound year round, and it it flies in the face of of conventional wisdom on on how learning takes place and how tissues adapt and all that. So there do need to be more, um, you know, kind of pronounced valleys in kids' schedules so that they're not always training specifically, but also have an opportunity to attack things in a more general sense. Um, I think there's a time for younger players to really work hard um, on, on making sure that every throw counts. We just did a, a podcast with Reed Detmers that I thought was great on that um, front. He talked about making sure that um, he was always working on something with every throw and catch play. That was something his his dad drilled home with him. So I think we need to be mindful of building not just general work capacity, but getting higher quality throwing sessions in as part of a progressive throwing program that that builds in and out of the, the competitive calendar, which leads to point number four. You have to establish a solid yearly calendar that outlines what should happen. And this is the most heavily overlooked part of, of developing you know adolescent athletes is teaching them what their year should look like and working with them hey if you want to play football or soccer here's how it fits into the calendar let's all work you know through this together but i think the problem is that most people just fly on a whim and they they don't stick to their plan right and and what does that mean you can't just decide to like magically go play in a tournament in the middle of November just because a coach called you and told you that he needed you. Um, you have to have an idea of how it fits into your entire calendar. And this is the only sport where you really have to do this, you know, like you can go out and play, you know, uh, basketball and maybe you're, you get winded or something like that. But you know, the incidence of injury is not going to be sky high like it is in baseball. Like you can, you can be rusty, but go play a soccer game and you know, what's the worst thing that happened? Maybe you pull a groin or, you know, absolute worst case scenario, tear an ACL, you know, in Baseball, you go out and you throw without uh, without preparing you can tear a UCL and miss a year and a half So we just need to realize that this calendar has to be sacred um, We've got to set it in stone and we've got to adhere to it um, and, and appreciate that this part of a long-term developmental plan and then fifth we have to really in this younger demographic we have to emphasize foundational principles of recovery so so what are those you know it's nutrition it's eating high quality foods um, particularly when you're on the road not missing meals things like that we got to emphasize hydration particularly on those long days at the ballpark and then, you know, certainly sleep. Um, I think, you know, this is something that, you know, does not get nearly enough attention in these younger populations. You know, every parent is really focused on wanting to make sure that their kids, you know, eat well um, and, and certainly hydrate. But I think the sleep aspect of it gets really, really overlooked is, you know, kids do need more sleep than, you know, most adults do, um, particularly as adults get older. Um, so I think we need to do a better job of creating a, an environment who's conducive to not just getting enough sleep, but getting high quality sleep, you know, getting video games out of the bedroom, shutting cell phones off. Um those things can go a really, really long way. And I think one of the things that's challenging is you see a lot of kids go on the road for these these travel tournaments. And in many cases you got three or four kids in a room and we know all of us have had sleepovers when we were teenagers. It's not exactly a conducive environment for getting a ton of sleep. So if you're gonna play four games in a weekend um you better make sure that you're sleeping you know sufficiently throughout that time period. Um, So that kind of recaps what we need to do with the the younger age groups. We realize that it's much, much more about building capacity, having a plan, and then you know making sure that you're doing normal things to help teenagers eat, hydrate, and, and sleep better to set them up for success. Now, in more experienced athletes, things are going to be a bit different. So first, the impact of strength and conditioning is going to be less pronounced in these athletes, on building work capacity because everyone does it, even if some do it better than others. Most of the athletes we encounter in professional baseball, particularly those that have gone to college, have a decent foundation in strength conditioning. We might disagree with some of their approaches and maybe need to modify some things to continue progressing them, but all of them have had the newbie gains, you know, that, that we come to expect of, you know, putting on 15 pounds and getting leaner and stronger in that first year of strength training. Um, even the, the high school athletes that are drafted seem to have at least encountered that. It's very rare that you get an 18-year-old kid who is completely detrained. That's very different than dealing with 14-year-old kids who just need to establish solid foundations. I think secondly, in more experienced athletes, pitch counts can be a little bit less rigid because the overall tolerance for throwing volume is higher. So any deviation from that pitch count is a smaller percentage than in young players, right? If a young pitcher is only ready to go out and make 50 pitches and you throw them 75, that's a 50% deviation. Um, from what they would be expecting. Whereas, if you take a more advanced pitcher and they go from 100 pitches to 125, it's still not great, but it's a 25% deviation from what they've been built up to. And just anecdotally, one of the things that I've seen that's kind of an interesting transition point is where you seem to see high school kids have the most issue is kind of when they go 100 pitches in back-to-back outings. You take a high school junior and he throws, you know, one Friday and goes 103 pitches, and the next Friday he goes out and throws 110 those are usually the scenarios when they start to bark at it. Whereas college pitchers do that all the time on, on 70 rotations, they're a little more built up to it. So it does seem like um, things change pretty dramatically over a two to three period in there. And one of the things that's interesting in more advanced players, uh, we know that the switch from a lever To starter is a problem. I've seen a lot of players who have, you know, they've tried to build up too quickly and switch from relieving to starting. And there's actually some some recent research that demonstrated that um, latissimus dorsi injuries, lat injuries in particular, seem to be associated with a quick bump in pitch count. Um, And certainly seen a lot of cases like that over the years where, you know, someone threw 30 extra pitches than they ever have and the the lat started barking. So, kind of an interesting, um, you know, kind of workload aside there, but it does seem like, you know, we can be a little bit more aggressive on the pitch count front and experienced athletes. That's not to say that we should, um, but they, they seem to be a little more tolerant of it than, than younger athletes. So, you know, it's much less of a capacity discussion with respect to strength and conditioning um, and throwing. Now, point number three is there's a lot of variability in throwing programs at the more advanced level. You know, some players choose to throw year round. You know, they simply play catch for a few months at the end of the season before gradually ramping up. You know, we did a previous podcast episode that talked about, you know, the perks and drawbacks of continuing to throw. Um, you know, you'll see also, though, at higher levels, if you're a, a minor leaguer who's in Double A for the fourth consecutive year and you're throwing 91, that's an athlete who may be willing to commit to a more aggressive throwing program. They're willing to take more chances and really kind of like push the amount of loading to try to drive some of their capacity a little bit higher to try to create some kind of adaptation. And this also may be college seniors having crazy pitch counts. If they know they're done with baseball after that year, um, you know, they may sell out for it, um, whether it's to win or to develop, um, with those more aggressive throwing programs or pitch counts to, to try to get them you know a free agent contract after they finish college or if it's a you know long-term minor leaguer maybe they want to get to the big leagues for the first time they're willing to take on a little bit more um you know kind of risk now we don't do that with 14 and 15 year old kids it's never worth it regardless of how nice the trophy looks to risk a kid's health at that age it does not make sense and then i think the fourth you know critical factor um, you know, in, in more advanced athletes is, is the quality nutrition, hydration, and sleep interventions. They're always foundational but we can get a little bit sexier with some of our recovery approaches right more of these athletes have access to manual therapy whether it's in professional baseball or the college realm or because they have the financial resources and insurance plans to go and get treatments on the side you know they have access to to mark pro red light therapy you know compression like normatec um you know farra guns uh, hot cold tubs you know blood flow restricted recovery protocols all these things are at their fingertip to conceivably create a a more conducive environment to going out and reestablishing capacity. So it's not just about like the the load aspect of it's actually about reestablishing capacity a lot more in these older populations, assuming that they've done things correctly early on in their developmental calendar. And and we we absolutely see scenarios where you see, you know, major league pitchers who have never done a good job of actually um, you know, building capacity, um, you know, instead, you know, they they've actually, you know, underloaded for such an extended period of time that we actually have to manage them much more like we would a high school athlete and they often make really really pronounced gains. So, every situation is a little bit deep, but different, but I think at the end of the day Amateur athletes, younger athletes tend to be a lot different than than college and professional athletes. Interestingly, to build on these discussions, we have to appreciate that other things can translate impact the capacity factors so I'm gonna you know just kind of go through a list that I, I brainstormed coming into recording this sleep deprivation is one that's that's a really big one and it's really sleep deprivation slash stress we actually know there's some really good research that shows that you know the incidence of injuries goes sky-high when athletes sleep less than seven hours per night we also know that we see an exponential increase in injuries actually in college athletes during exam time so these are things that just really interfere with an athlete's ability to bounce back. It probably creates a dynamic of kind of driving without a seatbelt, but they're more susceptible to to significant injuries um, simply because their body is is stressed in a variety of ways. And and every athletic intervention is is another stressor. Um, I think dehydration works very similarly. Um, We've we've touched on that multiple times as we kind of talked about double headers, um, you know, an extending number of games in a short amount of time, uh, particularly when they're, you know, combined with maybe uh, unfamiliar travel circumstances, staying in hotels, things like that, and young kids. Um, We know that dehydration makes people more susceptibility to not just impaired performance, but also injury. Um, Time changes are another discussion. Um, You know, I've heard the you know kind of old agreed upon mindset of for every time Zone that you cross, it takes about one day to adjust. And if you go and you play a you know road trip in in Seattle, and then you come back to the East Coast, you're you're covering you know three time zones, and you've really got to catch up on sleep. And um, in many cases, go out and play games. Those are those are tricky. And I don't think the casual fan appreciates how many Major League Baseball games are played by players who didn't go to bed until five thirty in the morning, um, simply because you know on a Monday, you know, or excuse me, on a Thursday night, like a getaway game. Um, or a Sunday night getaway game, they didn't get in until really late, so they'll they'll often play really tired Monday and Friday nights. Um, so those are certainly important considerations. I think vitamin D is another one that deserves consideration. Um, we do see, you know, low vitamin D, whether it's deficient or insufficient um, across athletic populations. There was a really good study that was done at the NFL Combine that followed players that were deficient in vitamin D, and they did see a, a higher incidence of, of musculoskeletal injuries in these folks. Um, so we need to be mindful, certainly uh, of how low vitamin D might impact their susceptibility to injuries medications, you know, building on just kind of like supplemental stuff. Um, there are certain medications that can cause more problems for athletes. Um, you know, Accutane is a, is is a medication for acne that we see, um, you know, somewhat commonly in in younger athletes, and there are some some significant side effects from a, a musculoskeletal kind of health, um, weakness, things like that. Dynamic, so we have seen quite a few athletes that have seen negative reactions to that. And we've seen you know plenty that have done perfectly fine with that, but it's an important conversation for kids to have with their their dermatologist that hey, I'm an active athlete. Before you you know go in that route, um, you know, there's certain antibiotics that that can have um, you know side effects in terms of um, you know, kind of muscular discomfort. Um, and overall just, you know, fatigue, those are important considerations. We also know that statins may be more in old athletes who may have issues uh, with their cholesterol and lipid panels. Um, you know, we've seen scenarios where, you know, professional athletes have been put on statins. We do know there's some research that shows that, you know, you are more susceptible to tendon injuries, um, you know, when you take some of those. So just really important considerations, you know, what you take might actually impact your capacity to handle a certain load. And I think that gets really, really overlooked and it's why it's so important. Important for us to to do pre-participation, you know, interviews and, and look at health histories to kind of dig in on what's actually taking place. Um, another one is we have to appreciate that things like anti-inflammatory medications may actually give you a false sense of capacity and leave you more susceptible to injury. So one thing, again, that the casual fandom may, or may not realize is there are a lot of professional athletes who are taking, you know, these things throughout the season, you know, something that we, we don't recommend, obviously, to amateur players and things like that. You should need to take a bunch of uh, anti-inflammatories in order to go out and pitch. But at the professional level, when you're being paid a lot of money to go out and perform, and, you know, some of these games really, really matter into September, October, um, some athletes will take some of these things. And one of the things it's always intriguing. Is at the end of the season, you will see a number of professional baseball players who will come back and they'll come off these medications and they'll have a really rough week where everything just kind of hurts. It's almost like a little bit of a detox period, and they realize they were a lot more banged up than they thought they were. Um, so we need to be mindful of the fact that sometimes anti-inflammatory medications can kick the can down the road, and you can actually go out and you know do a lot of damage. So you do a you know a cortisone injection, you are leaving you know the, the tendons more susceptible to injury. Injury simply because you're, you're looking for a quick fix to get somebody back out there quickly, so we need to be very mindful of how you know capacity can sometimes be deceiving, um, just because someone is asymptomatic. Um, Building on that, there are other extrinsic factors that might impact someone's, you know, tolerance, right? Footwear is a big one. You change your footwear and all of a sudden it's a different kind of load um, and you don't have the capacity for those adjusted positions, right? So we see that a lot when, uh, actually, I I remember a, a major league baseball athletic trainer joking with me that you never do more soft tissue work on lower extremities in baseball than the day after Mother's Day, father's day the fourth of july all these days when athletes get specialty cleats they try on a brand new set of cleats that might be slightly different than what they're wearing and all of a sudden their achilles their calves and their feet are really barking like crazy so that's an extrinsic factor that changes the load um, and capacity is very you know skill specific so you put on a brand new cleat and you're not going to be able to tolerate it nearly as much um Additionally, you know, we saw in baseball, obviously the, the change in baseballs. There were a lot of people that talked about like a slippery baseball forcing them to have to grip more as there was a crackdown on, on sticky stuff. So certainly that was an extrinsic factor that, that, you know it was heavily debated, but may have contributed to some form and and elbow injuries last year. That's a big one. And then, you know, a a big one that, that certainly gets a lot of attention in baseball is, is turf can be really hard on people. Not all surfaces are the same, you know, standing on really, really hard turf is going to be markedly different than, you know, being on grass. So you need to be mindful of, you know, are you wearing metal or molded spikes? Um, some athletes on turf don't even wear spikes. They wear turf shoes. Um, just trying to find a way to impact the load and the capacity dynamic, um, when you have these extrinsic factors that you're you're honestly you're not able to change um. In terms of intrinsic factors, you know, one that I think that's really, really overlooked is that if you have a structural deviation from normalcy, that can make you more susceptible to acute overload. So as an example, take an athlete who's got a a bad hip, something that, you know, has bony overgrowth, more or less tabular impingement, maybe has a cartilage defect, maybe it's got some, some loose bodies floating around in there, maybe it's got a labral tear or something like that. And that athlete goes out to dinner with his, his teammate who has a completely clean hip and they sit in the same bench um, you know, at the restaurant. One gets up after an hour and his hip is killing him and the other one feels perfectly fine. It was the same exact stressor, but one athlete had a structural deviation from normalcy or a collection of them that made that hip cranky after being in that position for an extended period of time. And it's why we know some athletes respond poorly to long flights or sleeping in, you know, hotel rooms with new pillows or whatever it is. You know, they they may have more negative reactions than other teammates. So that's an intrinsic factor and we may need to be mindful of Hey, how do we give them a little bit more variability so they're not just hanging on that? You know, we know athletes who have Bennett's lesions in their shoulder, you know, are probably more susceptible to some rotator cuff irritation. These are all things that we need to be mindful of as we're trying to manage, you know, this overall dynamic of, of load and capacity. It's not just a function of like what we do. It's, it's also a function of who we are. Um, so, you know, to, to kind of tie a bow on this, what are, what are some of the big recommendations? I think number one, you have to appreciate whether you have a load or a capacity problem or both. Most athletes probably need to look at both. But as we mentioned, more often than not, you know, in the, in the young, group, we need to build more capacity and the older group, we probably need to be mindful of how we manage load and then give interventions to kind of like, uh, assist with risk reestablishing capacity. Um, I think most people with capacity problems, unfortunately are blind to it and, and constantly spin their wheels. And, and I think honestly, you know, it's a baseball podcast, but you know, tennis is a community. That's a really good example. You know, so many tennis folks, you know, they hire a fitness coach and it's, it's, it's wordplay, but they always call it a fitness coach and never a strength conditioning coach. What do they do? They get someone that gets them to go out and run cones on the courts. They do more conditioning, more, you know, high level aerobic slash anaerobic conditioning on the court. And they never actually build a strength foundation. So it's they, they're building capacity in the wrong way, um, and I think you know that's something that you know is is you know prevalent across all sports, but it's just the one that, that kind of jumps out at me the most. We have to realize that you know there's both general capacity and specific capacity, um, and then we have to ask you know do you need interventions that transiently restore it? You know, in professional sports, we'll see people that create teams. They have strong manual therapy folks. They have nutritionists. You know, they have sleep specialists. They have all these different people, uh, sports psychologists who can contribute um to them you know basically restoring capacity easier so looking at things like nutrition hydration sleep you know are very foundational but there may be ways you know particularly as athletes get more advanced to get a little sexier with it and the last thing i would say is remember that load problems often require hard decisions right if you have too much load on the system it means you have to be willing to pull back That might mean you only play for one team. It might mean you, you know, play catch and doing, instead of doing extreme long toss. Maybe you skip a bullpen and just throw a shorter flat ground and, you know, working on feel instead of just elite velocity. There's all these different ways that you can manipulate load to bring yourself back into, you know, kind of a good position of checks and balances between these two. But at the end of the day, you know, it always is going to, you know, in some cases require, um, you know, making a hard decision where you're willing to pull back. So, that, like I said, I'm tying a bow on this one, but you know, really, at the end of the day, this workload management conversation is a discussion of both load and capacity, on um, how they interact with one another. And like I said, it's it's always going to be population specific. So you need to take a step back and think about where you fit into this equation. And if you're a coach, you need to appreciate that that every kid on your team might be a little different. Some kids are going to be more developed, more prepared than others, and you know, you can't expect everyone else to come up to their level, but at the same time, you can't bring them down to everyone else's level because then you detrain them and you miss out on a lot of important development. And that's the challenge in coaching is it's a, it's an art as much as it is as, as a science. Um, and it's, it's heavily reliant on just knowing your athletes, communicating with them regularly so that you can best set them up for success. So thank you very much for listening.